Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to study the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, what he called the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out in these programs that the Gospel, that's to say the saving message, the message which actually confers the germ of immortality, must be understood correctly in the Bible so that the fruits of that gospel can be borne by the individual believer. Now, there seems to be a great deal of confusion in contemporary preaching about exactly what the gospel is. We sometimes hear that Jesus came to do just three days' work, to die and to be buried and to be raised again. But is that really the whole truth? In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus stated unequivocally that he had come to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God. And so it would be very misleading to suggest that Jesus came only to die and to be raised. Now, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus are absolutely central and of vital importance in the gospel, but that's not the whole story. Jesus preached the gospel for some three and a half years before he finally died to ratify that gospel in his own blood on the cross. So what then was the saving message as Jesus himself preached it? Because, you see, the rest of the New Testament writers never suggested for a second that they were preaching a gospel in any way different from the one that Jesus had preached. Those apostles who took up the cause and the mission of Christ after his death and resurrection viewed themselves as the accredited agents and delegates of the Messiah. It was their intention to faithfully relay exactly the same saving gospel message as Jesus himself had preached to the public for those three and a half years before he was cruelly put to death by the Romans and by the Jews on the cross. I'm sure we're all aware of the great commission given by Jesus as the marching orders for the church after Jesus rose from the dead. That's found in Matthew chapter 28. And in that famous passage, the last verses of the 28th chapter of Matthew, Jesus said to the disciples, that they were to go into the entire world and to teach and baptize people and to instruct them in the very same teachings with which Jesus had taught them, the apostles. You see, there's no question of a change here. It's a question, so to speak, of business as usual. The same gospel message initiated by Jesus Christ himself was to continue through the agency of the apostles. And that faith is known as the faith once delivered to the saints. You remember that the half-brother of Jude, in that famous verse in Jude 3, says that it was necessary even in that first century to contend vigorously for the faith or the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. Because some were trying to corrupt that gospel. Now you can imagine that 2,000 years later, there's an ever more urgent need to get back to the very gospel as Jesus and the apostles preached it. Now, the reason why this matter of the definition of the gospel is of such overwhelming importance for all of us is simply this. The gospel message is God's tool for the creation of immortality in us. We as human beings, the story of the Bible tells us, are mortal, subject to death. We're in desperate need of the gift of immortality. Now, that gift of immortality is imparted to us graciously by God, through Jesus, by way of the message 
the words, the teaching, the doctrines, as they came from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Now the power of the Holy Spirit is actually transmitted in the message or the words of Jesus. You remember John 6:63, the words that I am speaking to you, Jesus said, are spirit and are life. That's to say that the teachings of Jesus actually contain life, energy, and spirit. And that spirit is a down payment of a vastly greater amount of spirit to be granted to Christians in the future at the resurrection when Jesus comes back. It's at that future resurrection, at the time of the return of Jesus Christ to this earth, that immortality is finally granted in its fullness to the believer. At the moment what a believer receives is the spark of life transmitted by those precious words of Jesus and contained within his gospel about the kingdom of God. All this is plainly seen in the teaching of Jesus himself. For example, in Matthew 13 and verse 19, we read that the seed is the message of the kingdom, the gospel about the kingdom. The seed, that is, which creates a rebirth, a complete renewing of the mind under the influence of the words of God, the words contained in the message of Jesus and generally in the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. Now, it must follow that the gospel is perhaps the most important word in the entirety of the Bible. The gospel describes what a Christian must believe in order to gain immortality or salvation in the future kingdom. And by the way, it's worth noticing that salvation in the New Testament is mainly spoken of as something lying yet in the future, not, as we so often hear today, something in the past. Now, it's true, of course, that one must embark on the road that leads to salvation right now with all urgency, but the stress and the emphasis in the New Testament is on the salvation still lying in the future. For example, Paul said in Romans 13 and verse 11, but salvation is now nearer to us than when we first believed. And so the initial believing of a Christian is only the beginning of the race. He must persist throughout the race until he successfully reaches the goal. And the goal presented to the Christian is always in the Bible, the inheritance of the future kingdom of God on the earth, not, I might add, going to heaven when you die, which is a popular idea that has no basis in Scripture. So what then is this gospel message as Jesus preached it? Well, fortunately, it has been mentioned over and over again in the New Testament. So important is that gospel message that those who recorded the words and the teachings of Jesus made sure that there was an absolutely clear definition of the gospel given. What then is that definition of the gospel? Well, the gospel, fortunately, has a label. It has an identity marker. Now, that identity marker defines what the gospel message is all about, the content of the message. Now, Jesus was the first and definitive preacher of this gospel of salvation. He said this in Luke 4, verse 43, The reason why I was commissioned was to preach the gospel, and now notice the label that goes with it, the gospel about the kingdom of God. There's the all-important topic of the gospel. You see, it's not just any good news generally about God being love, although that is also true, of course. It is a particularly focused message, and the focus and the concentration of the message 
is encapsulated in that wonderful phrase, kingdom of God. The next question then would be, what is that kingdom of God around which all of Jesus' gospel preaching revolves? Well, the kingdom of God is a thoroughly Jewish idea. One of the things we've been stressing in this series of programs is that it's very difficult to make headway in one's understanding of the Christian faith unless one is attuned to the Jewish background out of which all of Jesus' teachings came. We really have to be in sympathy with what the prophets of the Hebrew Bible had said before the time of Jesus, because as we're going to see, the gospel about the kingdom of God was not something brand new in the minds of Jesus' audience. The kingdom idea was thoroughly grounded and rooted in the Hebrew Bible, what we rather unfortunately call the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you see, that 77% of our Bible is not passé or obsolete in any way. It actually provides us the foundational truths on which Jesus' gospel about the kingdom of God is based. Now, let me make this point absolutely clear. When Jesus came announcing what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God, he was not inviting his audiences to believe and accept something which they couldn't possibly have understood. The kingdom of God was about as common in first century Palestinian Judaism as the American Constitution would be today. Everyone who knew anything about the Bible and the history of the religion of Israel knew what the kingdom of God was. The reason for this was simply that the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, God's spokesmen who had created the scriptures of the Old Testament, constantly spoke of the idea of the kingdom of God. Now, in fact, they did not use that very term, kingdom of God, with great frequency, but the idea behind the kingdom of God is plainly laid out for us in page after page of the Hebrew Bible. But it will be sufficient to point to two critically important passages in the book of Daniel, which beautifully describe for us what would have been understood by the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And there's absolutely no distinction whatever in the meaning of those two phrases. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel had been given a remarkable vision of four beast-like Gentile empires, and following the demise of those Gentile empires, there was going to be established, according to God's plan, the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Daniel 2, verse 44, reads as follows, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these other kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now there we have a perfectly clear definition of the kingdom of God. It's a world empire destined to supersede former Gentile world empires. There are four of them listed there in Daniel 2. And the fifth kingdom is directly the result of God's intervention by which the God of heaven sets up an empire which will never come to an end. Now, further information about this kingdom of God is given in Daniel chapter 7. The seventh chapter of Daniel, by the way, is probably the greatest blueprint for God's scheme and plan, his great design, ever provided anywhere in the text of Scripture. Daniel 7 gives us an outline of world history. 
And once again we see that the point to which the whole of world history is moving is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. In verse 27 of Daniel 7 we read this, At that time the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, that's to say on this earth of course, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. We read in the next verse that it was at this point that the great revelation given to Daniel ended. And it ended, I must point out, with a grand view of the ultimate objective to which God is moving in his plan for our world. This, of course, was the establishment of the kingdom of God under the whole heaven in the hands of the saints of the Most High. That's the objective, that's the denouement, that's the grand goal to which Scripture moves in page after page. It was because of Jesus' extraordinary grasp of this divine plan that he urged his followers always to pray as first priority, Thy kingdom come. In other words, may those conditions described in Daniel 2 verse 44 and in Daniel 7 verse 27 come into reality, come to fulfillment, come to be in actuality on this earth as a peaceful and enduring kingdom which will exist forever. Our time is running out for today. Please request from us our free book on the kingdom of God and join us again for our continuing investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.